Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. Great to have you back for another episode, or if you're uh, here for the first time, welcome. Great to have you here. Today on the show, we are joined by Mr. Mark McCullum, who's a former Air Force pilot. He's in the Air Force for 34, 35 years, and throughout that time, quickly climbed the ranks, and before he left, was training so many young pilots to be equipped to be proficient in the world of flying the Air Force aircrafts. He's a really interesting guy to talk to. It doesn't matter what subject we throw at him. I really appreciate his perspective, which is the reason I invited him on the show in the first place. We talk all things from mindset to physical fitness to adaptability under stress. It's a really interesting conversation around how the training towards Air Force flying correlates to so many other areas of life. You definitely don't even need to be interested in flying for this to be a relevant conversation for you. We actually recorded this one live up at Falls Creek in Victoria, 1,600 metres above altitude at a running camp. And so it was a, it was a nice little energy. I liked the vibe of doing this in person. I had a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So welcome to the show for the very first time, Mr. Mark McCullum. So what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. Mark and I are currently sitting up at, at Falls Creek. We're on day two of a, of a running camp. Um, done a couple of trails. You just got back from lunch. Your your wife's been on a mission herself, riding through trails. I was out for breakfast with Mark this morning, and for ages I've known about your background, since we first met, known about your background, obviously, in the, the Air Force. And just hearing you talk about it is constantly like a... It just sort of it, it piques, my, piques my interest a little bit. There's something about the world of flying planes and pilots in general that I feel like eased just perk up a little bit around you guys. But I thought maybe as a way of introduction, you're going to be able to introduce what it was that you actually did better than I am. And so like to kickstart the actual conversation, maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview of what your role was, what it was you were doing, and um, yeah, when you finished up. Yeah, certainly. So um, Air Force flying was always a love of mine as a kid. I actually wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. Oh. So my dad had a, uh, a fish smoker in the backyard, which kind of had a, a point on the top of it, which was a chimney, I remember as a kid, sitting in there pretending I was launching to the moon to go <laughs> in this thing, because it looked a bit like a rocket from the outside. So I wanted to be an astronaut, but you know, in Australia that was probably fairly unrealistic. But I continued to have a love of flying. Um, I left a small country town, Port Lincoln. Um, I got out of there as quick as I can, uh, went off to university. Started uh, doing a computer science degree, bombed out in my second year and ended up working in the computing industry. So I worked in the computing industry for about three years uh, and started flying gliders, uh, which I absolutely loved. Some of the best flying I've ever done was on gliders. But while I was there, Top Gun came out. So I was probably a product of the Top Gun era. Um, even still got my gold-framed Ray-Bans I purchased as a young guy <laughs> yeah. when I was you know, probably 20-odd. Um, so I then applied to Air Force. Yeah, because I thought, okay, well, actually, this is something I've always wanted to do. I always love flying. And they took me. So they said, yep, we'll give you a crack. Uh, and I then went on to pilot's course and graduating in December of 88 uh, as a pilot. Um, and then I had a, a number of roles in Air Force, and I'm sure we'll get to those, uh, over a, almost a 35-year career. So I did 34 and a half years. Uh, and then spent a lot of time flying C-130s, flying instructor, plus a number of roles in defence because uh, besides the core operational roles, defence is a big machine. 
and we had our chief of air force who used to call it, we're basically an engineering and logistics organization that happens to fly planes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a fantastic 34 and a half years. And I'm sure we can, I mean, I'll let you set the pace, but I'm sure we can talk about what was occurred in those 35 years. I could probably sit here and talk for an hour straight. Uh, yeah, awesome. uh, yeah I bet, question. I bet. <laughs> 35 years is plenty to talk about. With the, um, it's interesting, so not many Australians become astronauts. That's something I had no idea about. No, not many do. Um, so I think, uh, oh, I've forgotten his name. We've had one astronaut who spent quite a bit of time in space and on the uh, shuttle missions, but we had none when I was dreaming about being an astronaut, uh, you know, as a young lad. So that was when I was, you know, obviously, I'm quite old, obviously. That was when <laughs> probably almost, you know, 50 years ago when I was dreaming about the idea of being an astronaut. And I don't know where that came from. Maybe a love of science fiction, uh, watching the moon landings on a grainy black and white telly as a kid. I don't know. So, yeah, for some reason, I just got it in my mind. I like the idea of uh, the exploration of space. And yeah. Adventure. Are you a, um, do you delve into the conspiracy world at all? Because I know no, the moon no. landing one is a, a really interesting topic for some people. Like, it, I feel like there's, I don't know what the odds would be, but you throw the moon landing out to some people and it's one of those ones where they go, oh, you reckon it really happened? Yeah, and of course it did. Um, you know, and I, I'm a, also a bit of a science nerd and I was always a fan of the Big Bang Theory and they have an episode there where they actually shine a laser off of the reflector that's on the moon. So you can actually still prove that there have been men on the moon um, oh. because there is an artifact left there which was basically a reflector which uh, 90 degrees so it reflects the incoming light directly back and so yeah you can conduct an experiment at home shine a laser pulse on the moon and record the time it takes to come back see this is one thing that's so interesting to me because you, you hear something that sounds interesting like, i'll hear uh, like a, a clip on youtube and they go, ah, so it definitely didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> and then you speak to someone with a science background, they go, let me explain to you why I believe it did. Yeah, yeah. So it'd be a, uh, it'd be an interesting conversation to see you with a couple of my mates, I reckon, because <laughs> it's funny. It's one of those areas that I haven't actually really looked into at all. But yeah. I've got a couple of mates who who love the conspiracy yeah. world. And every time I sit down with them, I just leave going, okay, I'm not 100% sure what's going on with, <laughs> with anything. Just, you know, you look at the size of NASA. Uh, the effort they put into that organisation. And, and I've heard it said, what's the most uh, incredible thing NASA's ever achieved? And it was actually creating NASA itself. It was a fantastic organisation. And I think when they put a man on the moon, because it did happen, <laughs> I think the average age of the NASA employee was something like, it's in the mid-20s. So incredibly young organisation and, you know, very obviously innovative to achieve what it did achieve. So I think, you know, could you try and keep something like that secret for that long? I don't think it's possible. You know, yeah. the practicality of it, it would get out. It'd be, yeah, I'm terrible with secrets. I feel like I'll go home and I just get a smirk on my face, even if it's a tiny little secret. Yeah. Jesse's like, mate, that, like, that is so embarrassing that you feel so embarrassed. Mind you, one of the greatest secrets is Bletchley Park, when you consider the uh, breaking the Enigma codes during World War Two. You haven't heard about no. Bletchley Park? Okay. Um, yeah, so, you know, basically they broke the the German Enigma codes, and it was basically under the Official Secrets Act. I think it was 50 years. The people that were employed there couldn't talk about it. And then after 50 years had passed, it came out what they had achieved in Bletchley Park, which was was an amazing story. What uh, was it? What's the? So it was basically Alan Turing was a big part of it, uh, where they used mathematics to solve the encryption of the German codes, uh, which was an incredibly, at the time, sophisticated encryption methodology. And so they used a wide range of, you know, I guess, experts in the field. So linguistics, people that were good at cryptic uh, crosswords, people that were good at chess, they're good at solving puzzles. And they put together an organisation that solved the German Enigma codes and gave, uh, I guess, 
the Allies an advantage during World War II in the battle against uh, the Axis powers. Far out. Okay, so Enigma Code, this is going to just show my lack of um, uh, history around World War II, but when you speak saying Enigma Code, what are we actually talking about? So it's basically just a way of encrypting messages. And oh, okay. so they basically, had, it was a mechanical device that would use a number of wheels that uh, had internal routing of electrical circuits. And when you, every time you transmitted a code, it rotated. And so it was a moving cipher. Um, and it required quite sophisticated computer, which they built, a mechanical uh, computer. Um, what did I, I can't remember the name of the computer they built, but there are there is a movie um, which was called The Imitation Game uh, about about Bletchley oh. Park and solving the breaking the Enigma codes. Gee, what well, what do you reckon it is that not many Australians are becoming astronauts? Is it just a resource thing? Because I feel as though it's still one of those kind of career choices that when you speak to a little three year old or maybe a five year old when they're old enough to understand what it is they're talking about, it's almost that romantic dream of what they want to do. It seems like there's a, a big drop-off in how many five-year-olds talk about the idea compared to how many actually want to follow it up, compared to something like football here in Australia. Yeah, yeah I guess it's, you know, it's probably multiple factors. Um, so you've got, it's probably like getting a drive in a Formula One car. You can't turn up with actually a huge chunk of cash behind you. So I think you probably have to invest into the into the system to get a seat on one of these rides. Um, and there's also, you know, there's the the strategic element of it as well is that you want certain countries to participate in your in your activity. It makes draws your countries closer together. There's probably some very practical reasons. It's expensive, you know. If you're America, obviously funding most of it. There's European Space Agency. We don't have a well, we started a space agency, but it hasn't really achieved much. So the pathways to becoming an astronaut, I think, originally were the test pilot program. Australia puts pilots on the US test pilot program to come back to Australia and be test pilots within the Air Force. Um, but that was the the natural pathway. So I think there's probably multiple multiple barriers. Yeah. So, so your your entry into it was through flying gliders, you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adelaide Uni Gliding Club. Um, we had a uh, a strip at a place called Lock Hill, which was maybe an hour and a half, two hours drive north of Adelaide, and it was this big strip which was basically carved into a barley field, and so the uh, and it didn't cost us much. So the farmer would charge us. He'd he'd basically harvest his crop, and then he would charge us a proportion of what he didn't get from that field, oh. the area we actually occupied. So he was supporting the the club quite well and so yeah we we had a bunch of young guys with a bit of adult oversight <laughs> although we were adults we probably weren't behaving like adults but a, a bit of oversight from the chief flying instructor and we would go up there and spend the weekend there we had a bit of a log cabin kit that had been built so we'd sleep in the log cabin and fly gliders for the weekend yeah up there for a whole weekend yeah so you're sleeping yeah. in your allocated rooms and things no, no, like it that. was just a big empty room and you'd throw a um, a mattress and a sleeping bag on the floor and kind of sleep in the in the clubhouse. What what height do you get up to? Oh, we always stay below 10,000 because... You Is that metres? Uh, 10,000 feet. Okay, so 3,000 metres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And above that you need supplemental oxygen. So you basically above 10,000, you then start to reduce the amount of blood oxygen, which you get hypoxic, which affects your ability to function above 10,000 feet. So when you're in an airliner, your cabin altitude can get up towards 10,000 feet. That's why you might feel a little bit lightheaded. Um, uh, bread goes stale quicker. Your drinks go flatter quicker because you're at a higher altitude. So you would get at, uh, we'd probably, I think the highest I got as a glider pilot was about 8,000 feet. 
um, thermaling, but most of the flying I enjoyed was ridge soaring. We'd basically launch off of our winch, we'd have a winch launch, and then we'd turn right or left and go over to the ridge which ran north-south, and we got in winter we got westerlies. And so you could fly, fly low level up and down this ridge in a, in a glider, which was fantastic. I always look at, whenever I see a glider, like whether it's a video, I think I've only seen one or two in action. They don't seem to be something that you see around mm. a whole lot. But when you watch it, it looks like something that's just going to get blown around a little bit. Like how are you actually navigating direction things? Because it looks, from the ground or from my perspective, you just look like you're sitting in a big balloon. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. anything I know about balloons, it's when there's wind, it's just getting pushed wherever the wind is going. Out. And that's like an aeroplane that's moving within the air mass. So the air mass moves and you then fly within there. So you're, you know, you move, got forward flight. If you're moving sideways, you've kind of got a bit of a drift angle. So all aeroplanes subjected to drift and it's just a function of how fast they're going you know and on gliders you know i think when you're around about 30 knots when you're trying to stay aloft but we would often you know get up to 80 90 knots on a descent to come back to the field or when you're ridge soaring where you've got a lot of lift so uh how fast is that in in case you reckon so I think we're probably talking about 160 kilometres. Oh, they go that quick? Yeah, 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 and faster. Some of them wow, faster. that's so deceptive. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so your entry into the, the world of flying, that was step number one, essentially. Had you ever done any, um, not gliding, but originally when you said, yeah, gliding, I was thinking parasailing and things like that. I often wonder whether there's any connection between people who are doing that kind of thing and actual uh, like entry into any form of flying. Because I watched that and I go, okay, there has to be some kind of correlation. No, I haven't. I've, I've considered it yeah. as a kind of like a flying fix because uh, when I stopped flying them, my wife kind of says, do you f- miss flying? I was like, yeah, I do. But there are so many other things kind of going on in my life at the moment that I it's uh, I don't have the time. I've got mm. some friends who kind of get in touch with me and go, when are you coming flying with us, you know? <laughs> um, but talking about paragliding, I had a mate who was on my pilot's course and maybe you should have a, a interview him. He was paragliding, doing cross-country. So he was uh, basically had his paraglider, he's got... GPS for navigation. He's got a variometer to find lift, and so he was doing a cross country in a paraglider, and his chute collapsed, and so he was falling, and he deployed his second chute, that also collapsed and got tangled in his first chute. So he's now free falling with some drag, um, and he survived. And he was he was a big bodybuilder. This guy, his name uh, name of Warren Hall, and it's his story. So I won't tell you too much about it, but he effectively, you know. He stayed in control of his faculties and realised what was happening. And he said what he did is he manoeuvred onto his side and did what we call a G-straining manoeuvre. So when you're flying, you're pulling G in an aircraft, you strain all your muscles to try and retain blood in your head. And he said, I did this biggest G-straining manoeuvre and he hit the ground sideways. Fell from, I don't know, you know, above a 1,000 feet or something. It was a significant height. So it was at terminal velocity, but not maximum terminal velocity. And he survived. He had some significant injuries, some internal injuries. And he said he just felt like he just wanted to close his eyes, but he fought it and stayed conscious the whole time. Pulled out his mobile phone, he had no signal. And so he could see a short rise, I don't know how far away, but he then walked to the top of the rise and he had one bar and he managed to get get a call out, um, basically to triple zero. And they eventually came and got him, but I think it was all like three hours by the time he got a rescue. So he fell from this massive altitude. Oh. So that gave me I gave me some pause about taking a paragliding <laughs> well, once he told me that story. So okay, so he was paragliding and like so, so I don't understand the uh, how did he get into a free fall from paragliding? So somehow it collapsed, the chute stalled. So I'm not sure how that. Occurred. Oh, so the actual so when, when we're saying paragliding, we're talking about oh that's okay. One so of those wings. Sure. Yeah, yeah, so parachute. what am I talking about? I'm talking about um, paragliding. 
hang gliding yes. could have been what I was yeah. thinking. So I was trying to figure out, so he's fallen from his hang glider. No, but no. either way, I've actually, I skydived back in about 2010, and I reckon it was a one-off. You're mad, bugger. It was a, yeah, it was a one-off <laughs> thing. I actually, James, who you'll meet tomorrow, uh, he gifted it to me for my 21st birthday. I went with him, and looking back now, I'm like, the, the thrill to me is not worth what it what seems like a, a massive risk because on the way up the bloke who was attached to my back it was a tandem one was just explaining to me some of the close calls that he'd had I was like mate I would so appreciate you telling me this when we get back to the ground safely and then since then it's one of those things that it just captivates me from time to time I'll jump on YouTube and I'll just go down like a cave uh, like a cave exploration rabbit hole because it just terrifies me this idea of just being claustrophobic and scared and i watch it because it's scary and close calls in the world of parachuting is another area that i just get sucked into and uh, i hear about stories like your mate warren and i go okay you know what i'm so glad i hit the ground i'm never doing it again it's a it's a wild scene though i've got some not friends of mine but friends of friends who do it have done over like a thousand jumps it seems to be one of those scenes that when you get the bug you're in yeah so um I've had the opportunity to do parachuting. Um, so I've thrown out a lot of parachutes out of the back of C-130s. Yeah. Um, as Are they those massive? So I've uh, guys that have done both with wings, so flying chutes, and with the 24-foot standard one, which your, your, um, your para guys use, which are not a big chute. They, they hit the ground quite quick. Had the opportunity to do a jump because we uh, support the parachute training school down in Nowra. Um, and fortunately, because I was the captain of the aircraft, I effectively had to remain in control and command of the aircraft. So I had an excuse to say no. And it's like, no, I actually don't want to do a jump out of the back of the, in this. Uh, so when they, and they give um, Air Force people the opportunity, and it's generally a water jump because therefore the landing's not so, you're not going to injure you, yourself. And I know a lot of uh, ex para guys in army, um, and most of them tend to have injuries. You know, it's a, it's tough on their bodies what they do. And we used to use a place out near Richmond, uh, where the C one thirty Air Force Base was, which was called Rickabees. And I think they liked it there because it was always waterlogged and the ground was soft, so the impact yeah. wasn't so great. Um, but yeah, I like to control the risk I'm exposed to. And it could be my background with aviation safety. We mm. risk assessed everything, you know, it's always against the operational payoff versus the risk we're exposed to. So things like bungee jumping, there's no way I'm ever going to do a bungee jump or anything like that because there are a number of factors which I have absolutely no control of or understanding of. You know, so uh, the training of the operators, uh, you know, the maintenance of their equipment, all that kind of stuff. So I, I don't mind exposing myself to risk as long as I understand the risk that I'm exposing myself to. Yeah, it's interesting as well because the risk from my perspective looks so much higher than what I imagine it probably is. But in reference to uh, – there's so many different forms of flight I'm starting to realise that I'm getting the names muddled up. It wasn't a kite surfer. But I saw a guy down at 13th Beach a while ago. So he was attached to what looked like a parachute. And I don't know if he had anything attached to his back that was actually generating force or whether it was just purely the wind. But this guy, he was uh, directing himself and he was going up one way in the coast and then he'd turn around and he was coming back up the other way. So was he kite surfing? It might have been, it must yeah. have been kite surfing. Yeah. So it was just, he had the kite, he had the wind. And he was, he was attached to it with his hands? That was yeah. it. Yeah. So he's yeah. harnessed in, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But I was watching him. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know 13th Beach, essentially there's a couple of really good viewing points right near the staircases to go down to the beach. And this guy was at about almost eye level. So I'm looking down over the edge of what, it's not a sheer cliff, but it's a fair drop. And he's just going past me and then past me. And then I was seeing how close he was getting to the actual barrier on the side of a staircase 
that led down to the beach. And I was thinking, man, it's amazing. It, it looks as though there's such little room for error that I couldn't stop watching him. I was like, this can't, this can't be normal how close he's getting to these things. And at the last minute, he would come to it and then he would pull one lever and he would elevate himself. And it was almost like he was just toying with the danger a little bit. So it sounds like you, the way you're describing it, you could actually be paragliding. So kite surfers tend to use usually like a similar shaped wing, but they just use that to pull themselves across the water with a surfboard and they sometimes get some elevation. But if he's just purely flying back and forth, yeah. forth then he's probably para, what they call paragliding. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw that and I thought, man, that's another, that's another uh, sort of contraption in this wild world that I just had no idea yeah. about. But yeah. on our run this morning, actually, I was looking out over some of the hills and I was thinking this would be the kind of place that if you wanted to do any of the actual hang gliding, it's a, do you know if we get many hang gliders out in this well, part of the world? When you mentioned that, I said, you know, as a glider pilot, the thing we always were aware of is where the hell are we going to land? Mm. Um, because a glider ha doesn't have an engine. So you get at any point when you're flying around, you constantly have an awareness of what your glide radius is, a cone below you that you could reach. Um, so and I imagine it's the same with any form of gliding, paragliding or hang gliding. The first thing you've got to be aware of is where the hell are you going to land? And looking over this terrain here, I don't think there's many places <laughs> yeah, to land. I mean, it's pretty rugged, isn't it? It's spectacular. <laughs> yeah, it really and is. so the landing is like you've got lots of places to launch, but I don't think you've got many places to land. <laughs> yeah, maybe not the best place to yeah, take up that yeah, skill. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was interesting talking to you at breakfast this morning because hearing you speak about your aversion to risk, or not risk, but risk that you don't know the danger of, like the elements that are behind the risk. And I asked you, I was like, is there any form of fear when you step on a commercial plane and you're like, oh, no, nah, like I've got a fairly good idea of what's going on. I would say I'm a little bit of a nervous flyer because of the fact that I have no idea what's going on, which is weird because I'll look at a, I'm still, I'm 36, but I'll still just every now and then if we hit bad turbulence, I'll have a look at a flight attendant who I'm sure also probably has no idea <laughs> about yeah. what's going on. They've just exposed themselves to it so much that they're not so afraid of it anymore. But like from your perspective, and obviously we'll get into your, your personal story soon because I'm so interested to hear about like your experience flying the planes. But what is it in your mind um, that gives you such peace when you step onto a commercial airline? I know one of the things was you're very selective about the airlines that you fly with. Yeah, of course. You know, um, like any industry, there are different standards and those companies perform to different standards. And I won't talk about what I, who I will fly with or anything like that. But the thing that does put me at ease is I'm aware of how rigorous the engineering is behind the, the aircraft you're flying, if you fly certain types of aircraft. Um, and also I'm aware of the, I guess, the compliance, the governance that, that sits or wraps around aviation in general. Uh, especially, you know, in uh, those nations that have better oversight and can afford to have oversight. And obviously these, these are companies trying to make money. Uh, and so there's basically an operational oversight and there's an engineering oversight. Um, and so the engineering around aviation is incredible. We've had over 100 years to work mm. out how aeroplanes work and how to make them better. You know, And I think if cars had actually advanced as much as aeroplanes had from the first car, or say the right flyer, to what we're now flying versus a car, they'd be incredible machines. They are incredible machines, but they haven't advanced as much as what aviation has. And so there is also... Um, I guess, a volume of knowledge gained. So the engineering, there's the analytical engineering, they understand it, but aircraft then have to be certified by flying a certain number of hours to demonstrate that they have safety. And then the aircrew have to, first of all, be selected and complete their training. And then, then they are constantly undergoing training and testing throughout your aviation career. It's not like you get the stamp of approval and it's, it's over. 
Um, so, you know, I was a, a flying instructor. So the standards at which we train to and test to are, are, are quite rigorous. But also throughout the year, I would be constantly testing pilots, you know, operational pilots uh, when I was at a squadron as a flying instructor. And so, oh, let me see, I think you probably have at least a minimum of seven or eight tests throughout the year. So four times a year, you do what were day-night dual check, which was basically mm-hmm. how you physically handled the aircraft. Then once a year, you'd get an instrument rating test, which was uh, basically, can you fly within the required accuracy limits and demonstrate knowledge of the instrument procedures plus general aviation knowledge with a quiz. And then you'd do two emergency refresher checks where we put them in the simulator and uh, mm. conduct a number of emergencies. And so an emergency, they'd have to remember what's known as boldface. So a number of immediate recall actions, such as, say, for an engine fire or an abort, you know, an aborted takeoff, they'd have to memorise these responses and work with the crew to then use the, to make the equipment safe and then recover the aircraft, plus also some quite deep, complex emergencies um, where they then have to refer to flight manual and, and performance charts, etc. And that occurs twice a year. So um, that's for your baseline pilot, your line pilot. He's doing at least eight tests a year to ensure that he's performing to the standard required. Yeah, I was reading a book. I, I wish I could tell you what the name of the book was, but it's so fascinating because you'll have a certain person in a certain situation who they'll have a textbook knowledge of something and you ask them the question of, okay, what do you do in the situation where... Uh, you know, but it's a point one of a percent chance that it's going to happen. But now you're in it, and it's happened, and you've got the knowledge, but you haven't been exposed to the actual emotional stress that comes with a situation like that. And I was thinking of it before when you told me about uh, your mate Warren, who survived his accident. Just that presence of mind to go, okay, well, I've got a practical solution that I'm going to at least apply or try in this, you know, really unfortunate situation. Is is that something that you test? Because the mental side of flying an air force plane seems as though it comes with a couple of attachments, for lack of a better word, in that, okay, I might have the knowledge, but how does that knowledge actually, uh, you know, express itself when I've got these other emotional factors yeah, playing so, out? Yeah, so we, we test at various levels. There's obviously various theory. So in for the sure. classroom, for sure. you learn the theory, you learn your systems, um, you also then go into, and I guess we probably escalate the stress, you know, that the, the, the air crew members under to assess their performance. When we're in training, and Air Force training has advanced quite a bit from when I went through. So back then we had so many applicants, you kind of, it was almost like a sink or swing approach to tra- a sink or swim approach to training. Mm-hmm. And we had about a 50% pass rate. Um, when I later became OC Air Training Wing, we were implementing a lot of high-performance programs where we acknowledged the investment we'd put into the pilot up to that point of their training. And so we would go, okay, based on the investment, we can actually put a bit more into this person to get them over the line. We think we can actually still have a productive pilot generated from from the training. Whereas in the past, it was like, you know, two scrub rides and you're gone. <laughs> you yeah. know, and so the blogs, you're, you're scrubbed, you're out of here and you'd salute and walk out the door when the CO told you. Um, whereas now we take a, a very, I guess, business-minded approach to the investment, the money we've already put into the pilot. We actually acknowledge that, uh, that people are need to be resilient in these programs. So we have resilience programs and they also, uh, you know, they need to be taught how to learn. Whereas we never really, I don't think we were that sophisticated when I went through, you know, 30 odd years ago. Whereas now the training is actually very supportive of the of the candidate within the system because it's getting a return on investment. You know, we're putting, Defence puts quite a bit of money into the training um, and the systems that support training, we obviously want productive members to come out the end of it. 
So what kind of stuff are you doing when it comes to training resilience in, in your pilots? Um, so it was, we actually uh, was being implemented when I was, and so this was 15, no, sorry, 16, 17. Um, they were using the SAS program to resilience huh. and it was actually about acknowledge, it was about how to take critique effectively and how to grow from critique. Um, oh, also, it was about awareness of um, that, you know, the failure is not really, uh, it's not about you, it's about your performance on the day. Yeah, uh, yeah. And also, it was about open and closed mindsets. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, when we talked about open and closed mindsets, the US Marines, they don't praise people. They praise people for the work they've done to get there, apparently. And this is, this is hearsay because I've read this, but they don't say, you know, you're fantastic, you did a great job. It was like, you've done great work, you know, and you've worked hard to mm-hmm. get to this level. So, so you know, people to realise that you can learn, you can change, and just because you fail, that's not the, the end of it. And the fact is you will fail, you know, because one thing about it is a lot of people that make it onto an Air Force pilot training they are high-performing individuals and they've generally done incredibly well throughout their, whether it's their sporting pursuits or their education at that point in time. But, you know, pilot training is now approaches two years in total. It's quite a long, arduous process. And in that time, you know, you're not always going to be on the top of your game and you're likely to face failure. And it's about preparing them to how to deal with failure and how to grow from that. That's so interesting. I mean, it applies to so many areas. Just in my life, as you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, one thing that Jessie has learnt through a number of the parenting courses that she's taken place is, is when one of our kids does something wrong, don't go like, oh, you're just a naughty kid. Do what the Marines in the US do and go, hey, that action is not helpful to anyone. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I can see how it's beneficial. It's hard when you're emotional to remember that and not just go, hey, you're a flog, bang. <laughs> do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But uh, when you actually pause and, and think about what it is you're trying to achieve, it makes so much sense. I find that with, with well, both running but also stand-up comedy now where a lot of my time and attention has gone you're in. You're a brave bugger. <laughs> well, it's so funny. Yeah, I feel like feelings are mutual because the idea of flying a plane terrifies me as well. But... Um, I guess the consequences are a bit more dire if you don't know how to fly a plane. If you don't know how to do stand-up comedy, you just get embarrassed for a couple of minutes and then you just get on with it. But I'll often find that if I'll I'll get up there and I'll, I'll have a good set one night, I might get up the next night and I'll have a bad set. And one of the things that often makes me feel better is, hey, you've, you've actually, you've shown before that you've got the capacity, you, you know how to do it, you've done it, you've had a room full of people laughing, like you, you've got the skill, you just weren't able to execute for whatever reason tonight. And there's so many variables in an industry like comedy as well. Like you'll you'll literally take the the same joke set from one room to another room, and in one room you'll kill an exact same thing. Take it to a new room, and for whatever reason, that the, the jokes will just fall flat. It could be obviously like the way it was presented. It could be the atmosphere in the room. It could be your delivery, um, like your state of mind, uh, like a, an interruption in the room. And so to get down and to say you're bad at comedy, it's actually first of all it's not honest, but second of all it's not helpful. And so I often find after a bomb, I'll go home and I'll watch professional comedians talk about bombs and how important it was to their development. And so to hear, I'm constantly amazed at how how this particular lesson applies to every single industry. Like, I guess it just applies to life in general, doesn't it? Failure is 100%. It's going to happen. It's not a matter of, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's simply a matter of when. And so you've got to be open enough in your mindset or have, I find asking uh, better questions one of the most helpful ways for me I was like all right so if you're a bad comedian why did you do so well last night you go oh well you sucker punch me because now i have to think about you've got to justify so this is interesting because i you know you learn more from failure than you ever do from success mm-hmm. do you ever when you've had a great night then go okay why did that go so good 
I probably don't do it enough. Yeah. I, I think sometimes you can rest. I notice I rest on my laurels a little bit if I've had a good night. I the the same laziness that I probably apply to the the tough nights at the office, I probably apply to the other nights where I go, gee, this is easy. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? Yeah. I wake up the next morning and. Uh, but one thing I've started to try and be a little more disciplined with is I keep a notebook. So it has um, every time I do a, a, a gig, I'll write down the jokes that I did and I'll write down my, my main focus before I get up on stage and I just do three dot points after it. Like what went well, what went bad, what can I improve? Mm-hmm. And I just find the simplicity of that feedback really helpful because for a while I used to I used to have a little bit of a background, not a background, but I, I dipped my toes into the water of day trading for about two years and one of the most important processes that like elite day traders were saying you have to do is you have to fill out a, a report at the end of the day what trades did you take when did you enter why did you enter why did you get out um uh, was it an a plus trade was it an f trade was it profit was it loss and it used to take about half an hour or 20 minutes if you want to do it well for each trade that you took and i started to apply that to comedy but because i was i was doing comedy so much it just felt super laborious mm. and like the idea of trying to do a page reflection was just if you're doing four gigs in a night it's like oh my gosh like it just starts to become a whole nother thing and so that that three dot point thing is first of all easy to digest and second of all easy to maintain yeah yeah yeah. Um, four gigs in a night really uh well that's that's a slight exaggeration yeah. people do do that yeah, yeah wow yeah um i mean i've done three well, it's kind of interesting the alcohol curve of your of your audience as well you know do they get drunker throughout for sure the night? Yeah. well it's actually an interesting question because i often notice that if you you want to have a strong performer go up first because a lot of the time mm. that first performer can set the tone of a night to a yeah. large degree because yeah. yeah you go out there it's a relatively dry audience they don't know what they're in for they know a lot of the rooms that i'm at they don't know if it's going to be funny <laughs> do you know so if you can send someone out first or if you're out first yeah you've got a bit of a challenge to win them over but yeah you definitely notice as the drinks start going down things start getting a lot funnier uh, and a lot louder, whether that's for better or worse. But yeah, it's a really interesting world to be a part of. But yeah, just that that reflective part of of that is it was helpful for. It. I did the same thing with my training journals back in the day. For yourself, like were there were there any standout failures that were really helpful in your development as a pilot? Um, so I guess I probably had a pretty smooth run. There were a couple of failures I had, um, and I was although I you know I wasn't kind of like a fighter pilot I actually ended up becoming quite proficient um, as as an aviator uh, and it got to the point where and I stayed on one platform pretty much the whole time except for the time out as a, a flying instructor so you know it's like if you ride the same bike or drive the same car for almost 20 years you get pretty good at it yeah. so I made some poor decisions you know which was uh, and I think you know you you talked about stress one thing we talk about is your SA bubble your situational awareness how big that is um, and that's usually the downfall of uh, some of some of our air crew is that under stress their situational yeah. awareness bubble reduces yeah. to the point that they're not seeing things because yep. as a as a flying instructor I could sit there and it's about you know the actual act of manipulating or maneuvering an aircraft is pretty simple it's not that complicated um, and often it's about n- about how you acquire information. So I could sit there and I could point out as a flying instructor and I could go right, you know, altitude, airspeed. And as I'm pointing things out to them, they make the appropriate adjustment to keep the aircraft within the performance parameters we'd require. But when you leave them alone and they then their situational awareness bubble reduces, they're not looking at the right places at the right times. And so when I did make mistakes, it was usually because there were lots of things happening and my situational awareness bubble reduced to the point where 
I therefore missed something in the environment when I made a decision. Um, so, for instance, uh, flying out of Darwin one time, and I think we might have been going up to somewhere in Southeast Asia, um, and you do a thing called an engine run-up where you basically test the performance of the engines in various power ranges and you produce a lot of prop thrust. I almost blew the roof off the air <laughs> movements terminal because there were things happening. There were radio calls and clearances going on and I positioned the aircraft and pointed it straight at the air movements terminal <laughs> and then did my engine oh. run-up and it was like, and because there was obviously something that distracted me in my decision-making. Um, and so, yeah, my SA bubble reduced enough that I made a poor decision. Um, and so a lot of the failures are usually decision-based. Mm. You know, they're not uh, uh, skills-based, especially when you're... Because flying an aeroplane is, is a complicated environment, you know. And so usually you miss something in the environment which you make a, a poor decision. Yeah. Not a decision, and the thing about it being a poor decision is because I think if you gave someone else the same subset of information that the person made, they'd probably make the same decision, but there was a piece of information in the environment that you weren't aware of. And that usually leads to that that decision. So and so when aircrew do make, we say a poor decision, it's usually because they didn't have some information, and and you know and so twenty twenty hindsight is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. And so, but in the situation, you go well, you know, if I had the same information that person had, I probably would have made the same decision. Mm. But we we classify it as a poor decision. How much is that changing with the automation of airlines and things like you were explaining to me this morning? That was something I, I think I was a little bit aware of the fact that commercial airliners had some form of automation involved, but I didn't realise it was to the extent that what you're explaining it is tonight. Like you, I, I think, I can't remember if I've just taken words out of your mouth or if I'm just making this story up, but I think you said some were automated to the, the degree that they'll even do the taxi. Yeah, so they can do auto taxi so the aircraft can steer itself around. So you're doing um, taxi, you're doing takeoff. Yeah, you're doing... yeah. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the operational requirements are, but yeah. there are some airframes where the pilots will, hands on control, monitor the aircraft automatically, perform a takeoff and a landing. Um, obviously, they're, they're the more sophisticated modern aircraft, and there are still aircraft out there which require the pilots to actually land the aircraft, uh, disconnect the automation. Um, but most airlines, uh, especially into major, into major hubs, have uh, what's called an instrument landing system, mm-hmm. which basically the aircraft can fly down to touchdown. And uh, they also require the pilots or the aircraft to use these routing because it allows them to sequence the air traffic controlling because air traffic controlling is an incredibly stressful I've um, heard that. role. So I've got some, a mate who's an air traffic controller. Uh, he used to be the CEO of the School of uh, Air Traffic Control in, in Air Force. But yeah, it can be an incredible um, stressful job when you're trying to manage busy airspace and keep aircraft away from each other. Mm. Yeah, by Now, we, there are a bunch of other systems that now uh, TCAVs, uh, well, not, sorry, that's uh, that's terrain collision avoidance or traffic collision avoidance. So the systems now aircraft now talk to each other, and you have awareness of where other aircraft are. But it's still an incredibly stressful job for air traffic controllers and difficult as well. Yeah, so you got the air traffic controllers are equipped, and then the pilots are also equipped with yes. the information just to bounce yeah. off each other. I've seen some uh, interesting YouTube videos of San Francisco Airport and some of the takeoff and landing there. And I don't know what the duration that these flights will take, but it seemed pretty constant. Like every, it felt like 15 or 20 seconds there was a plane coming or going. So you see in that environment how, I mean, that looks like a fairly stressful situation to find yourself in. Yeah, like Honolulu, being in Honolulu was one of the busier places oh. I went into on a weekend. We used to go in there all the time because it was a shared field. 
Um, and Hickam Air Force Base uses the same uh, runway as Honolulu. And on a Friday when everyone's coming into Hawaii for their weekend, it was incredibly busy airspace. Um, so you were flying from, from Melbourne to Honolulu? Yeah, so some so from Australia, sometimes you'd be out of town, so we'd, huh. from Richmond, but we'd always break that up. That was two hops for us. We'd go to a South Pacific destination uh, overnight there. And that was the great thing about C-130s. It didn't have the legs, the ability to go a long way really quick. So going somewhere was always an adventure. You'd always have somewhere in between and it would take you a couple of days to get somewhere. So it used to take us four days to get to the west coast of the States. Uh, we'd fly out of Australia, land in the South Pacific Island somewhere, then fly into Hawaii. And because we'd crossed a certain number of time zones, we needed a crew rest day. So you'd have a day off in, in Hawaii, which is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and then you'd fly into the west coast of the States. Well, uh, so you were flying over as a team? Yeah, yeah, so the crew of the aircraft. So C-130s, um, the traditional, the classics, um, which had flight engineers and navigators, would have a minimum crew of five. Mm-hmm. So that was two pilots, pilot uh, captain and co-pilot, uh, a flight engineer and a navigator, and a loadmaster who looks after the back end of the aircraft. Um, the modern C-130s, C-130J, now have a minimum crew of three, which are the two pilots, a lot of com- uh, flight computers and automation on board the aircraft, and a minimum of one loadmaster. Yeah, so you said before you're not a fighter pilot, and this was something that I'm so interested in because when you say you're a part of the Air Force, I get confused as to what that means specifically. Like my my granddad, he was involved in the Navy, and I've never had a conversation with him where I'm like, okay, I understand there's a ship, there's a whole heap of <laughs> there's a whole heap of people on the ship. But if you were to ask me what specifically he was doing or what was going on, I go, you know what, I'm not 100 percent sure the dynamics of it all. So if you're not a fighter pilot, like if you're not actually out there and you're like in the middle of a battle and you're trying to shoot down other planes or whatever it is that you're doing, like what is it specifically that a person in your 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 role does? So first of all, I'll let you know that the Air Force aviation is an incredibly broad spectrum. So we operate everything from balloons up to F-35, probably it's a sophisticated fifth generation fighter out there, maybe with the F-22. Um, so, and the balloon is for recruiting and obviously uh, PR, mm-hmm. uh, but we also have the Air Force Museum, and they're not on the Air Force Register, they're on the Civil Register. So we operate uh, historical aircraft as well, um, up to the F-35. But So my, my career was mostly on C-130s. <coughs> so we were oh, transport. Look at it while you talk. Yeah, so four-engined, uh, uh-huh. um, basically... It's the uh, it's a it's probably the classic airlift after the Dakota. Um, it still persists. They're still building them today, uh, which was basically transport. Um, before we had C-17s, it used to do effectively tactical transport through to strategic transport because we yeah. didn't have anything. Plus, with the 787 at the time, once we got the C-17, the C-130 mainly focused on on tactical transport. So that's yeah. basically from um, you know less developed airfields, although it can operate out of major airfields. It was into dirt strips, uh, you know, basically uh, less prepared. Also, um, strips in the middle of nowhere. So at night, unlit uh, kind of stuff as well. So tactical transport. Most of the time is what we call trash hauling. Yeah, going okay. from point A to point B <laughs> with a heap of cargo or passengers down the back. Yeah. Um, sitting up the front, uh, you know, eating Frozos, having tech discussions, <laughs> reading magazines. If someone had connectivity, they'd probably day trade up there if they could. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, you're doing an eight-hour leg. You yeah. probably, uh, you, you focus your attention, obviously take off to top of climb, top of climb to landing uh, when you are most focused. But that bit in the middle, you have a work cycle. Um, yeah. So where you 
deal with navigation, you monitor systems, look at your fuel usage, uh, talk to air traffic control, and occasionally you know, you'll run a, a tech conversation, you'd educate the crew, you'd discuss something. Um, but yeah, so a lot of also eating Frozos. Um, yeah, what's a Frozo? They're those, I think I remember they're like those, I don't know what shape they are, but those little packet. They're different. Frozos, depending on who does the catering. Air Force um, used to have a, do its own catering, but they're basically a bunch of frozen meals that you either throw in an oven or a microwave to Ah, uh, I was thinking like a, I don't know what I was thinking. I was thinking, thinking like a. M- uh, basically, a, um, uh, what do you call them? MRE, meals ready to eat kind yeah. of thing. Uh, like field rations, yeah, rat packs, as we also call them. Man, it's so interesting. I, I know the plane you're talking about now. I don't know if I've I've seen this specific one in action, but I've seen planes that look big like that. I don't know why originally I was thinking like a, a smaller plane that you're flying, but you see they're, they're intimidating looking machines, aren't they? I used to think they were big. <clears throat> so uh, you know when I so obviously we flew smaller aircraft. I trained on the CD4 and the Mackie, the MB three 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 nine three three six. 339, I think. Um, and then, basically, you turn up to a C-130 and you go, my God, that's big. But then you go somewhere and you park next to, say, a 747 or you park next to a C-17 and you go, my God, that's big. And it's like this and so big. And also, the airplanes get smaller as you become more familiar with it. It almost becomes like an You kind of know how long the wing is. You know what you're going to be able to get past. And so you have an awareness of the, of the airframe around you. And it seems to get smaller the more time you spend in the airplane as you become more aware of it. Gee, I spoke to a, um, uh, what's that big airmail company in the US? Oh, US Postal, maybe? Yeah. There's another one. There's another one that... that FedEx? FedEx. Mm-hmm. I was speaking to a lady who was a FedEx pilot for for years, and I was actually at an airport, and we're having a conversation, and she's like, oh, how do you... Because we were sitting in what looked like really bad conditions. Like, it was windy, it was cloudy, you could hear thunder, and I was like, oh, great. Like, this is going to be fun getting on this plane. And uh, I don't know how the conversation started with her, but I said, oh, like, how are you feeling about it? And she's like, mate, I used to be a FedEx pilot. I go, what does that mean? And she's like, dude, like what a commercial airline does in comparison to what I had to do, you just, you can't even imagine. Yeah. She said, like, there were flights where I would have sand, which was on the bottom of the flight, the bottom of the, like, on her shoes or around her shoes, would hit turbulence so bad that it would get in my eye. Or, and I was like, I, I didn't, didn't realise you had so much wiggle room in terms of what was capable because the plane starts wobbling when I'm up there and I'm like, oh, here we go. Like, this is interesting. I think some days I'll, if, if I've had enough flights in a row, I go, oh, whatever, like, I'm not yeah, that yeah. fast. Yeah. But if it's been a while between drinks and I get on a flight and we hit turbulence, I'm like, uh, are you, were you guys a little bit like the FedEx lady? Like, you're just getting to point A to point B as quick as you could, so you're just taking you know, even a little more treacherous route? So we, you're obviously aware. So, you know, if we're, say, taking troops somewhere, yeah. you want them to be fit for purpose when they get for there. Sure. So if they're parachuting, sure. you actually want to, the last thing you want them to do is be sick when they're jumping out the back of an airplane. Or if you're doing an infuel exfil where you're putting troops on the ground, you want them to be able to hit the ground operating. Yeah. And so you, you look after your troops and you tend to look after your passengers anyhow. So you avoid turbulence. But at times that you can't avoid turbulence. You know, if we're flying from point A to point B, we'll change altitudes. And airlines do this all the time mm-hmm. as well. You get reports about where the turbulence is. And they're usually associated with the jet streams, which are basically a slug of air that's moving at high velocity. And you get turbulence. Oh, so unless, yeah, it's, yeah. unless it's associated with cloud, you know, say... Um, a thunderstorm or something like that. And so you can fly at altitudes to avoid turbulence. Sometimes you've got to penetrate turbulence anyhow. You can't avoid that. Um, but, yeah, you try and avoid it. It also fatigues the airframe. It also fatigues you. You know, you the pilots want to be have a comfortable ride as much as the passengers want to have a comfortable ride. Um, but I tend not to be worried about turbulence. Um, 
if uh, I, and my wife used to be a, a great flyer. She used to love flying and traveling until she watched, I think it was those air disaster shows yeah. when they first yeah. came I think they might have got me too. Yeah, and she watched one of those and now she's she, she doesn't mind flying on an Air Force aircraft. She's quite happy to do that. Yeah. But every time we're on a, uh, an airliner, she just, you know, she gets quite stressed beforehand. And she's got an incredible grip strength, I found out, during the takeoff. It's like, babe, you're going to have to relax here if you're starting to hurt me. And, you know, and if the, the noise, it's like, it's okay, that's just the landing gear coming up. Or what was that? Okay, well, that's just the hydraulic motor driving the flaps up. So I explain anything to her. It doesn't make it any easier for her, though. And I try and say to you, look at me. If I look worried, you should be worried. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, and I haven't. I've, I've been, I guess, in some quite... Severe turbulence. Also been struck by lightning. Um, oh wow! So, yeah. So what know, happens there? Uh, well, we were quite fortunate. So this was in the C-130J, so it was an electric aircraft. So basically, it was a, all basically computer screens and head-up displays and uh, and mission computers. Uh, and we were actually flying out of Iraq back to our base in in Qatar at Al-Udid Air, Air Force Base, and we were avoiding some thunderstorms, but we just got struck by lightning. It's a huge crack, um, you know. Really loud? Light. Yeah, really loud. Oh. And I was like, okay, we're just watching all the systems, waiting for things to fail, and we were fortunate nothing failed. When we got back on the ground and they found the point at which the lightning struck, it was one of um, our fuel dump drains. So each wing's got a, a fuel dump drain where you can jettison all the fuel off of the aircraft. And the rear edge of that was actually significantly eroded, so it actually burnt away part of this drain where the lightning had struck. Yeah, so, so what happens with a commercial airline? If you get done by lightning, are they? is there any fear that like your technical gear goes out there? Or are you pretty... Yeah, because you don't know how it's going to affect the aircraft. Um, aircrafts have static wicks on them. Mm-hmm. So they basically, uh, you generate static as you move through the air and they basically have a conductive uh, wick that hangs off the back and it discharges static. So, you know, it could touch, it could touch down on one of those, but you don't know where it's going to strike. Um, or you know how what the effect's going to be. And we were fortunate it didn't affect any of our systems and we just continued the flight and everything was working. Oh, fine. man, it would be enough to make you jump. I remember, I reckon the most sketchy thing I've ever had, and I don't know how common this is, we were on a plane once, and actually one one of the pilots once said, all right, like, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to do a fuel dump, like we've got too much fuel on the plane. Um, you're going to notice like we're going to drop pretty significantly, like don't freak out, it's all, it's all planned. And then I was sort of sitting there like this, like, oh, here we go. And the, the drop just never seemed to come. I don't know exactly what happened there. But just the anticipation and the warning of what they were about to do, that, that was enough to get me a little bit jumpy. Yeah. But then one day we were just coming in. It was pretty bad turbulence. We are coming into land. Uh, and we were, we were low, like we were really low, big commercial. I don't know, uh, is it a 737, like a yes. usual? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a couple of hundred people on there. Um, one of the most successful airliners in the world, 737. Interesting. Yeah. So we were about to land, and it looked like we were 50 metres off the ground, and then all of a sudden the engines roared, and, and we were heading back up again, and he said, all right, we're going we're gonna to have another crack at that. So I don't know whether that was just like a, a, a bad a bad landing attempt, or it was like the old plates, or... Yeah, so jets are interesting. Um, propped aircraft like a C-130 has got so much thrust it can generate almost instantaneous. Uh, a, a jet has to spool up. It's got a spool up time. And so they tend to have what's called go-around criteria, and all and all air, air crew do. There's certain things where you will abort the landing and, and give it another go crack, you know, go around and redo yep. it. And one thing they do with airliners is they have a, what they call a, um, a minimum ground speed. So if there are gusts in the area, you can actually get to the point, especially with the microburst, where you can actually stall the aircraft because... Hmm. Uh, wind coming from behind you can then reduce the uh, the amount of lift you're generating. 
Yeah. And so that's, it could have been one of the things, you know, it could have been the fact that they were outside of the instrument limits. It could have been many reasons why they chose to go around. could have been another aircraft that hadn't yet uh, cleared, uh, sure. cleared the runway as well. Um, so especially on very busy air, uh, you know, airfields, they've got the aircraft stacked up really close together. And if the aircraft doesn't get off the runway quick enough, then they would, may also have to go around. So it could have been one of many reasons that they conducted the go around. Gee. No, no, and you know, most of them would probably be no fault of their own. Yeah. So you were saying you were based out at um, Sale uh, for a... Yeah, for two, a, for two years in Sale. For two years. So that's where, where I went to school, obviously. I used to see the planes flying around a lot there. And I always just had in my mind when I saw the flights or saw the planes, I was like, oh, okay, like they're, they're in sale, they fly around sale, they land in sale. I was never thinking about the fact that you guys were making international trips. Yeah, so um, in sale, which is mainly uh, training. So oh, okay. Central Flying so School. I was probably right. Yeah, so, so yeah, you're probably <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, so we, uh, we basically the training we do there is uh, air combat officers used to be navigators. Um, plus uh, the QFIs, the Qualified Flying Instructors, are most of the, the training that's done there, and 32 Squadron, which support the training of navigators, and they do some operational tasking. Uh, 32 Squadron will do opera- overseas operational tasking. Um, they will also mainly support uh, what used to be called the School of Air Navigation, and I don't know what the school's called now. Uh, and it was the PC-9, now the PC-21, which was for the QFI training, plus, as I mentioned, the roulettes. The roulettes are also based there, so they would also be practicing their yeah. routine. Yeah. So, what are the roulettes? They're the ones. They're the ones you see spinning and. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So formation aerobatics. Um, was that what you were in when you said that was yeah. the only time you ever got sick in a plane? Oh, up in aeroplane. Yes. So, what was yeah. the story there? I've seen a daytime host back in the day. Uh, he, I think this was more an intense, like a jet of some sort, and you just see him pass out halfway through yeah, the. So that would have been well, possibly in a jet. I don't know if you're not prepared for the G, you could pass out in a roulette. I Oh, gee, so have you experienced that much? Have you been in the back back of a jet, or did you ever fly that style of plane? Uh, so only in training, we used to have the Mackie, the Aero Mackie, which was a jet which we trained in uh, back in the, I think until the early '90s when we got the PC nine and we did all through pilot training. So it's not a high performance jet. We kind of joke that it was variable noise, constant thrust, but sure. you could go high altitude and you could go quite fast in it. Um, but you know those aircraft could still pull a significant amount of G forces. I don't remember the limits, but about six, six or seven G you could get up to. Although we stayed when you're training, you stay well short of the aircraft limit because you don't want the you know pulling too much G and overstressing the aircraft. So what were you doing in the back of the? Uh, sorry, what's it called? The rule. The roulettes. The roulettes. What yeah, were you doing? So now? Was that just a bit of fun. Yeah. So that's the Air Force's display team. Um, it's obviously uh, supports a lot of activities. Melbourne Cups, Formula One races, you know, Bathurst, uh, promotes Air Force. It's also a bit of a recruiting activity. Um, so, yeah, so the roulettes basically develop a new routine. So there's what's called roulette lead. And so he becomes the, the effectively the, the leader of the team and he flies roulette one. Um, and they develop a routine. Of course, they try to put their stamp on the routine. There's a bit of creativity in, in generating an aerobatics routine. And I had to effectively sign off on it for the commander of Air Force Training Group. And so I would go for a ride with the roulettes while they do their training and then to sign off on the routine. And the, the story I'm talking about was uh, they decided to do a second routine and I was fine for the first routine. And it's a lot of G, it's a lot of manoeuvring. Um, and when you're not actually in control of the aircraft, it's worse than when you're flying the <laughs> Yeah, I agree. It's the same with driving. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's the same with driving. It's a windy road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I managed to hang on until the, oh. until the end of the second go through the show. 
Uh, and what actually did me in was these incredibly quick snap oh. rolls. Uh, and and it was like I said to the roulette one, um, you know, I'm going to... Going to throw up here, and uh, he he said we could call it off. I said no, no, let's go through to the end. Oh. So I was pulling G and dry heaving into a bag. Oh um, my gosh! How I much just, longer did you have to go with the flight? Oh, uh, we only we only had possibly three or four minutes. It was kind of oh. the pitch into the into the landing stream landing. Yeah. The three or four minutes like that seems like a lifetime. Yeah. I imagine when you feel yeah. sick. I could appreciate it because I got the uh, Jesse jokes that I've got the biggest princess stomach. I went to the Great Barrier Reef. <laughs> Put me in a boat. I'm actually pretty good on... I'm very good on planes. I can't remember the last time. Maybe when I was a little kid, I got sick on a plane. Um, put me on a boat, though, or in a passion to seat of a car. Nah. I uh, I went to the Great Barrier Reef in 2016 with my wife, brother-in-law and his wife. And I got to the Great Barrier Reef, being like a... I don't know what it was, maybe two hours. We were on a, quite a small boat. Yeah. And we got there, she's like, you're not, you're not getting in the water, you're too sick. And I was like, oh, please. Best place you could have got was in the water. Well, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. I, yeah. So I was like, I wish you'd let me in yeah, because yeah. it seems to be the way. Um, yeah, anyway, so I was asking Jesse to order me helicopters and get me back to land because I'm just a, <laughs> I think I'm a, a land-based animal. I don't think, I, I think my best, uh, my best work is done down here. So we used to do um, kind of low-level flying and there's often a bit of turbulence at low level. And we had some loadmasters that were incredibly dedicated to their job because some of some of these guys would get incredibly airsick. I knew one guy who used to tie a bin bag around his neck because, you know, oh. he would run into either for a para drop at low level. Uh, he might be pre- preparing a load to go to the back, you know, unfastening tie-down straps and that type of stuff. And he would get sick and he would throw up in, but continue to do the job. And uh, we were doing a display one day at Richmond and we had to hold away from the field for the timing and it was low level and it was bumpy and we used to wear green flying suits or still wear green flying suits and when uh, he stepped off the aircraft he he was as green as the flying (laughs) suit and it was like mate you are incredibly dedicated you know all kudos to you because uh, he used to really really suffer but he loved the job enough to to stick at it despite his it sounds like a real that sounds like a military mindset there's a certain respect i have for, for people in the military i've got a couple of people that i know um, I, I knew a bloke who, actually, I know a bloke. Uh, now I'm saying this, I'm not actually 100 percent sure. He's at least got that military mindset that I appreciate, but I'm not convinced he's he's in the military. U.S. guy, but he's a kind of bloke that he has the capacity to when things get really hard. He he's got more gears than than most people. Uh, when things get really hard, he's got that clarity of mind that we spoke about earlier. And I've watched people like that, and I I think I I definitely respect it. I can notice it myself to a certain degree. But it's a characteristic or a trait that I really appreciate about, I know this is a massive stereotype, but a lot of people that I see at least representing the military, like Jocko Willink. I don't know if you know who he is. He's an American, I want to say he was a, I want to say he was a SEAL of some yeah, sort. I'll no, show I'm you not, after this. I'll show you. Him. Yeah. Anyway, he's, a, he's a, a bit of a wild man. Like he's got some, he, he did like quite a number of um, trips to, to Iraq and Hey, lost a lot of friends to suicide, lost a lot of friends you know, in and around. So um, he's he's probably the pinnacle like uh, of an example of what I'm trying to talk about there. But is that something that you notice that it attracts a certain kind of mindset? Like I know you said with the Air Force it was a, a really studious kind of kind of person who a lot of the time passes the tests. Yeah, it's, I think it's interesting. Defence forces are incredibly diverse. Mm. And so there are your operational roles and there are incredible support roles. So to, to say all defence people are like that, you know, probably um, might 
misrepresent the situation. But those in operational roles tend, I think, need to be. Uh, and so, you know, we have administration, we have uh, doctors, yeah, lawyers, sure, of course, that kind of stuff. yeah, that makes sense. But those in the uh, in the operational roles, there's, I think, there's, you know, there's obviously the recruitment standards, and so there's mm. a lot of testing within recruitment. Yeah. There's also psych assessment. Uh, but then there's the selection throughout training. So first of all, you need to pass training. And all these attributes you're talking about are actually challenged and tested in training. And then there is also self-selection. You know, there are those. So if you look at probably some of the hardest selection, uh, say, for special forces, there will be a number of people who will self... And in fact, I think their construct is they self-select out of the course. That they kind of... They, they leave. Um, it's fascinating, uh, special forces. Uh, but I remember we had a, a young pilot who was struggling at 37 Squadron, where I was at the time, I think I was the training flight commander. And he was really struggling to, to come up to speed for what we required of him uh, in that role. And when he eventually got to the point where he was going to be, uh, and I think it was unsuitability is, the, is how we report on, that he was unsuitable and he saw that it was over, it was an incredible weight lifted off of him in because, you know, he, was, he wasn't enjoying himself in the role. So sometimes people realise that, you know, maybe this isn't for me, this isn't the life for me, and they then self-select out, which I think is a, is a great outcome. You know, for sure. You, you know, to, to be miserable in doing something that you thought you would love, I think would be quite uh, tough. I reckon, I've actually told you this before, but uh, 2015, it was about 18 months after I finished my running, I was like, oh, what do I do now? Like, what do I do to finish, uh, to fill this gap? I've still got so much passion, enthusiasm for like big physical adventures. So I was like, all right, I'm going to try. And it was it was funny because it's like the cliche of the ultimate challenge. I was like, all right, I'm going to try and climb Mount Everest. Nice. And so, I know someone who's, who's uh, summited on Everest. Too. Is that right? I'll tell you about him afterwards. Oh, yeah, interesting. So I went to like a very long story short. I had to uh, raise the funds. I had to do the training. I had to get the gear. I had to get the ticket of approval. So I went to Nepal for a month in 2015. There for a month, we had to climb Mount Lobachet and Island Peak were the two mountain names. Um, essentially, I had to climb both of these for the company that I wanted to climb with to even consider you um, based on insurance and just suitability, blah, blah, blah. But I remember it was the physical stress was one thing. But the the actual fundraising stress was equally as weighing because I was like, oh my gosh, it's going to cost a hundred thousand dollars. Like I don't have a hundred thousand dollars sitting in my bank that I can dedicate towards. <laughs> you know, I don't have a hundred thousand bucks sitting in my bank at that time. I just I, I so I couldn't just dedicate it towards um, climbing a mountain. Obviously, I needed someone to fund it for me, and so that marketing side was huge. Long story short, before one of the mountains, I just I, I altitude was fine. I just got a really bad dose of food poisoning. But the bloke that was running it said, uh, you can't climb today. And I said, well, if I can't climb, if I'm not allowed to climb, does that rule me out or am I still able to prove myself on the other mountain? He goes, no, you need the two mountains. Mm. And I was like, well. Mm. So anyway, I felt the same way. I was kind of relieved. I was like, okay, the stress is done. Yeah, so yeah, I, I yeah, sort yeah. of get exactly yeah, where he was yeah. at. My mates were like, you should just fly to New Zealand and see if you liked mountain climbing first. Because <laughs> yeah, I got I there and because I was, I was trying to, I had to be a hype man yeah, because yeah. I was trying to raise 100 grand so yeah, I could climb. Yeah. So you had to be pretty out there with it. And so it was kind of embarrassing, humbling, whatever. But uh, people were really understanding. But I was just, I just remember walking back with two Sherpas from the, the base that we were going to climb. I think it was the first mountain island. Yeah, it was Island Peak. Back to the actual, like, bigger town and just being like, oh, thank God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I used to do a bit of rock climbing. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And 
uh, the guy I know that summoned, a guy by the name of Brian Lawson, kind of got me into rock climbing. He was a techo, worked on C-130s when I was a young pilot um, at Richmond on C-130Es. And so I went out rock climbing with him a few times, but he was really into the alpinism. I personally, I couldn't understand it because, you know, controlling risk, to me, sure. that environment had so many risks you couldn't control. And I was like, there's no way I'm ever going to do anything like that. Um, but rock climbing was something where I felt like I had an awareness of the risk, you know, with the placing of project, uh, protection, the use of the gear and that type of stuff. Um, but he was incredibly dedicated to to actually summoning well alpinism and, and I think he wanted to do is it the seven summits on the highest summit on every on every continent. I yeah, think, that, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he basically lived on base uh, in some on base flats, and to get to the summit of Everest, he did it with the Army Alpine Association, so it was kind of largely funded by defence as a defence activity. But he sold his car, he sold his motorbike, yeah. he sold all his possession. He had a a mattress, a single mattress in a room with all his climbing gear arrayed around him. And I was like, okay, that's actually a symbol of your dedication yep. to achieving this goal. He, he sold everything to, to do that. It's incredible it, to buy the gear and be prepared for it. It seems to be a, a really familiar thing with the rock climbing world. I've seen a lot of documentaries. I'm a real big fan of a guy called Alex Honnold. Yes, who's, yes free soloist. Free yeah, soloist. Yeah, so yeah. he, from what I understand, just lives in his van and travels yeah. from wall yeah. to wall. To do his climbing, and uh, I mean, I don't know if it was you. No, it was Tim yesterday. I was speaking to about Patagonia, and I read their book, "Let My People Let My People Surf" or "Let My People Go Surfing" or whatever. And just reading through that, I was like, "Oh, okay, this is just the culture." It was almost like that '70s surfer. It was a little counter culture. It was okay. We're not we're not just going to go the corporate route. We're we're going to say goodbye to all that stuff, and we're going to surf and get in yeah, nature. Yeah. And you know, our life just revolves around that. But you're right; it definitely takes some some level of commitment to it. Yeah, so he was incredibly dedicated and he ended up, I think, on the expedition. I think he was the only member who summited. Um, so, yeah, he was very fortunate. Man, it's a, it's a wild scene. A couple of the guys that I was there with, actually one of them, Kevin Fairbrother, a uh, really interesting guy, British guy. He's he's now, he climbed three times, he's climbed it three oh, times, wow. which is unbelievable. I want to say the last time he did it without oxygen, like any mm. supportive tank. So there's some some wild people out there. Well, it is quite sad, the impact, that it's become an industry. It really uh, has. The guiding industry, you know. And, uh, we've seen some images recently of some of the camps and the stuff that's been left behind. And, and uh, you know, hopefully they get on top of that and they sort out because if it's going to be sustainable, you've got to minimize your impact to the environment for sure and without disrespect to like anyone who's summited everest it's become like the four minute mile now to use a running analogy which makes sense it's still impressive yeah but it's no longer what it was back in you know the 50s it's not the edmund hillary anymore exactly right but um man thanks for um thanks for sitting down with me that was fun it's just a good excuse to pick your brain for a little while and like i can't say i know any air force pilots so it was an unreal Conversation. And we didn't talk about much about Air Force and politics. Ironically, like, like all the best podcasts, they seem yeah, yeah. To, to veer off track a little bit. But um, I appreciate your, your insight and, uh, and stopping by for a chat. It was fun. Yeah, thanks. Tom.